0: Welcome back, Crimaholics. I know we have a ton of new listeners, and I just want to say welcome. We are so incredibly happy to have you tuning in. I am your host, Holly, and before I jump into today's case, I wanted to let everyone know that in the description of each episode, there is a link that you can visit to submit a case suggestion for us. We've been receiving a ton of comments all over social media about various different cases, and the easiest place you can visit to make sure that we see it is that link to our case suggestion form. Without further ado, let's get into today's case. Chelsea Brooke was born on January 28, 1992, in Trenton, Michigan, to her parents Matt and Leandra Brooke. She was the baby of the family and had four older siblings. Chelsea and her siblings grew up in a town called Maybe Michigan. Maybe Michigan is located in Monroe County and is a teeny small town. According to the 2014 census, Maybe had less than 550 people residing there. So as you can imagine, it's another one of those places where everyone knows everyone. According to the Detroit Free Press, Chelsea was raised on her family's farm. Everything I read up on Chelsea said that she was well-liked, had an optimistic personality, and she was extremely caring. And she was a beautiful blonde-haired, green-eyed girl. In 2014, Chelsea was 22 years old working at a restaurant called Olga's, and she and several of her friends were really, really anticipating this huge Halloween party. This party was the talk of the summer. Chelsea and her friends had their costumes planned out and were really looking forward to attending. Now, this party was being held by a guy known as Big Mike, and this party was an annual ordeal everyone looked forward to it. Big Mike was known for throwing the most epic parties with live music, dancing, and lots and lots of drinking. Big Mike himself was in a band, and his band also played at these parties. These parties took place on his mother's farm, and the annual Halloween party was the party you did not want to miss. So naturally, Chelsea and her friends were going to be there no matter what. They had previously attended other parties of Big Mike, so they knew what to expect. Several hundred people would flock to these parties. I was able to find the Facebook event for the Halloween party that they had attended. The event was to take place on Saturday, October 25th, 2014, starting at noon until 5 a.m. the following morning of October 26th. The event lists the address as being off Post Road in Newport, Michigan. And then it goes on to say, quote, you know how I throw a party raw and uncut, ha. There's going to be eight bands plus the shenanigans. Bring your own beer. Must be 21 to drink. Free camping. 40-foot bonfire for only a $10 parking fee. We encourage everyone to dress up and have the most amazing time of your life. There will be prizes for the top three costumes. Vince's West Elm Drive-In will be catering with Chili Dogs, Cheese Fries, and Burgers. Also, I am proud to announce that Campfire Pictures and Welcome to This World Video Productions will be filming the event. Shannon Razorblade will be MCing the night and doing fire breathing. I have only one rule, no fighting. If you do, you will be kicked out by my security team and myself. Party on, dudes. End quote. Then it lists off all of the bands and their designated time slots, starting off with Big Mike's band called Pickaxe Preacher. This whole event on Facebook really paints a clear picture of how huge this event was going to be. Having professional pictures and video production there to document the whole thing. On that October 25th, Chelsea set out to Big Mike's party with her friend Becky. The two of them planned to be characters from Batman and Robin. Chelsea picked to be the evil character of Poison Ivy. She spent months working on her costume that she had hand-sewn herself. It was covered in ivy leaves and she picked out a perfect purple wig that had red ends. So the girls head off to the party and meet up with their friend Penny and her sister. Penny was 10 years older than Chelsea, but despite their age difference, Chelsea and Penny were extremely close friends. And Penny even stated in a Dateline interview that the two were practically attached at the hip. Around midnight, the bonfire got lit, which a lot of people were drawn to and started gathering around it. While walking that direction with Becky and Penny, Chelsea ended up bumping her nose somehow on a tent pole. Which we all know how it feels to smack your nose on stuff, it's not a good feeling. And I guess after this happened, she kind of just wanted to be done with the whole party and go home. But her friends talked her into staying. They told her to drink some, it'll feel better, and she did eventually begin to feel better, and the night went on. It was decided earlier in the evening that when it came time to leave that Chelsea would catch a ride home with Penny. Around 1 a.m. Penny decided that it was probably best for them to head out. Her sister, who was also at the party, had to be at work in the morning and had to get up at 6 a.m. so they needed to get going. They realized at that point that Chelsea wasn't with them anymore. Unfortunately, they couldn't call Chelsea either because Becky had been holding onto her phone because Chelsea didn't have any pockets in her costume. And with the amount of people milling around the party, it was impossible to find Chelsea. Penny's sister was really wanting to get home because she wanted to get some sleep before she had to go to work, and they decided that it was for the best that they would leave Chelsea behind. They assumed that they were in a big group of people. Chelsea would likely stumble upon someone else that she knew and would catch a ride with them. So they felt comfortable leaving her behind, even though leaving her behind left her without her cell phone. The following morning, Becky woke up realizing she still had Chelsea's phone and decided to call her mom. She left a message on her mom's phone letting her know to let Chelsea know that whenever she wanted to come by to grab her phone, she would be home all day. It wasn't until later that day when Becky got a message over Facebook from Chelsea's sister saying that she never came home from the party. Becky responded saying that she was probably at a friend's house and was still sleeping off a hangover. But when Chelsea still hadn't come home on Monday and zero word about her whereabouts, they decided to file a missing persons report and began their search for her. They began by contacting everyone they could think of that may have seen Chelsea, including a message to Big Mike himself. When Mike got the message from Chelsea's sister, he didn't even know who she was talking about, but he agreed to begin searching his property for her. While walking around the property, his dog would get its foot caught into a fox trap, so he had to stop and head back. When he got back to the house, he was surprised to find that Chelsea's family had gathered there. Mike talks in a Dateline interview how her mom was really suspicious of him right away, and I can understand she was extremely worried about her daughter. She was almost a little bit accusatory of Mike, asking him pointed questions about if he had Chelsea locked in a basement or if he had locked her in a trailer. He had to leave to take his dog to the vet and Chelsea's family kind of made the property their base camp for their search. He recalls in the interview that her family never really asked permission to do so and he contacted his lawyer to ask what he should do. Mike's lawyer advised him to just allow them to do their thing and eventually it'll die down and they'll move out. So that's what he did. Law enforcement came out and began searching the property with their ATVs and search dogs and found no sign of Chelsea. Of course, the search would span out beyond Mike's property where the party took place. Chelsea's friends worried that maybe she decided to walk home and was struck by a car and was in a ditch somewhere. And they also had worried that maybe she was snatched and forced into human trafficking, as there was some other recent cases around the area of women being kidnapped and forced into sex work. One of the biggest struggles for law enforcement was trying to figure out what to do after their first initial search of the grounds. Keep in mind that this was a massive party. Had it been a small party, they would have asked all of the people that were there. But it was next to impossible to know who was all at this party, when there easily was 600-plus people in attendance. And though the party was at Mike's property, he didn't know everyone. And one more element of frustration for investigators was that the party wasn't just a regular party. Again, this was a Halloween party, so all of the people were wearing costumes that could have potentially hidden their identity. So despite not really knowing where to start, they started by trying to get to know who Chelsea was better. They searched her room, went through her phone, and spoke with Becky and Penny. When speaking to Becky and Penny, they asked about Chelsea's love life. Was she seeing anyone? Was she interested in anyone? And they learned that Chelsea was single, but there was a few guys that she was interested in, and they looked into them in depth. Ultimately, though, they were ruled out. They were able to get in touch with at least six individuals who had seen Chelsea at the party after her friends had left. Several of them, she actually had asked to use their phone. And one of those phone calls had been to her friend, Penny, who had already left her behind. Penny states in the Dateline interview that Chelsea had called her and asked for a ride home. She had told Chelsea no. She said at that time she felt like she was being responsible saying no because she had drank too much. Penny also states that she didn't sound upset or in desperation for a ride or anything out of the ordinary. But other party goers said they did see Chelsea crying near the fire pit and that she was upset saying she didn't have any friends and that her friends ditched her. And she was also crying about not having a way home. But when she had borrowed those various different people's phones, she never once tried to call her mom. A few days after Chelsea went missing, the investigators got a tip called in by the mother of one of the guys who had attended the party. She stated that her son had seen Chelsea that early Sunday morning around 3.30am, and he specifically remembers it being Chelsea because he told her he liked her costume, but talked about how allergic he was to poison ivy. He said that she was visibly tipsy, but he also stated he saw something else, a man who appeared to be hovering around Chelsea. The guy stated that this man was almost comforting Chelsea and standing around her as if he knew her. He then told authorities that the man and Chelsea ended up walking off together into the darkness. He was able to give a really good description of the man and worked with a sketch artist to come up with a composite sketch that he felt resembled the man he had seen hovering over Chelsea. They released this sketch to the media immediately and they had tips flooding in almost instantly. The problem, however, with this sketch was he was literally just your average guy. He had glasses, a little bit of facial hair, and his hair kind of swooped in like an early Justin Bieber hair swoop. He looked like so many people, including some of the guys who played in one of the bands that night. Investigators followed up on every single lead, even having the FBI look into those band members, thinking that maybe Chelsea had left with them after the party. But all of them checked out. There was something that Chelsea's family just could not shake. They felt that some way, somehow, Big Mike was involved. Investigators brought him in for questioning, which he cooperated with. He told them he knew who Chelsea was, but didn't actually know her. When they asked to search his home, though, he actually told them no. So they got a search warrant, showed up on his doorstep with 13 or so SWAT guys, and went through that house top to bottom. They also spent a lot of time digging through the burn pit, searching for any clues. After their tireless search, they found absolutely nothing of Chelsea. But they kept Big Mike as a person of interest in the back of their mind and continued forward with following all other leads. It wasn't long after their search of Mike's place that another tip would come in. This time, it was a tip about a young man named Harlan Bird. The caller said that he likely had information about where Chelsea was and what had happened. They brought him in for questioning, and he tells investigators that he had witnessed two individuals harassing a female in the parking lot of the party. He had stated that they were shoving her around between the two of them, and she was yelling for help. Harlan stated that he intervened, fought these guys off, and helped Chelsea up off the ground. He even mentioned that he had gotten some of her blood on his shirt. He said that he didn't want to leave her alone, but he also didn't want to stay there because he was scared that if people had seen him with her in the state that she was in, that people would think that he was the one that assaulted her. So he sat Chelsea in the back of a four-door red car, but didn't know whose car it was. He then stated that he went back to the party to see if he could find any of her friends. And then after about 10 to 15 minutes, he went back to the parking area to check on her and that at that point, she and the car had been gone. However, investigators really weren't buying his story. So they kept pressing him, asking him extremely pointed questions about his interactions with her. Did you do something to her? Did you rape her? Did you guys have sex? All of which he said no. Finally, they asked him the one question that ultimately cracked his story. Harlan, did you even know Chelsea? Did you even see Chelsea that night? Which again, he answered no. He admitted that he ultimately made up the whole entire story just to look good, which was just a complete waste of time for investigators because they still had to check out whether his story was real or not. Harlan ended up being arrested for lying to the police. But despite not having any proof of anything and him admitting that he actually did in fact lie, they kept him in the back of their mind also. Months would go by when finally, in late March, a woman would call in by the name of Cheryl Retzloff. Cheryl lived 2.8 miles away from where Big Mike's party had taken place. She said that while cleaning up some winter debris that she came across a shoe. She said it wasn't unusual for them to find things on their property because they lived on a well-traveled road. But usually they'd find things like spare tires, speakers, car radios, and other objects. The shoe that she stumbled across was a red leather flat shoe. When she first found it, she didn't think anything of it, tossed it into the garbage bag with the other items, and continued cleaning up. But when her husband came home that evening and the two of them were talking about the things that she had found, she told him about the shoe. And he said, what if that was Chelsea's shoe? Deputies ended up coming to pick up the shoe and the following day, detectives sent a picture of it to Chelsea's mother, which she immediately identified it as belonging to Chelsea. A team of searchers went out to scour the area where Chelsea's shoe was found and they even did a search by air and nothing more belonging to Chelsea was recovered. Now there was a guy by the name of Eric and he also lived in Monroe County and he and a friend would do what is called scrapping. And if you're not familiar with what scrapping is, it's pretty much you go in various different areas looking for any kind of scrap metal that you can then turn in for cash. And Eric said that it was something that he and his friend did often because they were both hard of for money. So they ended up going into this abandoned building. And this building was located about 10 miles away from Big Mike's property. While searching through the junk inside this building, they flipped over a rotting piece of plywood. Underneath it, the guys spotted what looked like a fake plant. And when Eric bent over to pick it up, they realized that it was actually a poison ivy costume, and then they spotted a purple wig nearby. They ended up throwing it back down where they found it, and not long after that, they left the building altogether. And it wasn't until about a week later when Eric was at work that he had seen a missing person's flyer for Chelsea. And on that flyer was a picture of her in the Poison Ivy costume. And this is when he kind of put two and two together that this could have been the missing girl's costume eric however felt really really nervous about coming forward with the information he was worried that since he had touched the costume that somehow it would fall back on him as being a part of whatever had happened to chelsea he ended up confiding in his sister over brunch and she told him that he needed to call authorities and she practically said if you don't call the police i will so eric did Police obviously responded quickly and went to retrieve the costume and they found that the straps and the crotch of the costume had been ripped. Of course, what Eric feared would happen kind of did. They brought him in for questioning and they heavily questioned him on if he knew Chelsea, if he was at that party, and how he just happened to stumble upon this costume which he didn't know Chelsea at all, and he didn't attend the party. He actually was home that weekend with his daughter. Eric willingly gave up his fingerprints and his DNA to authorities and then was eventually ruled out as being involved in the disappearance of Chelsea. So when examining the location and the surrounding area of where this abandoned building is, authorities was able to make a strange connection to the location with someone else harlan bird remember he was the man earlier who made up the story about practically rescuing chelsea from those two guys well it just so happens that where harlan lived was just about 100 to 200 yards away from the location of the abandoned building where chelsea's costume had been found they called harlan in for questioning again and this time he showed up with an attorney They asked him about the location of the costume being found inside that building so close to where he was living and he told authorities that while he had visited that building before, he didn't know why her things were there and that he had nothing to do with it. He also agreed to give authorities a DNA sample and to take a polygraph test, which he ultimately passed and was ruled out of having any kind of involvement in the case. On April 24th, 2015, about seven miles away from where Big Mike's party was, a dump truck had pulled into a construction site where a man was building a house on his property. They were in need of some filter, so the dump truck was bringing some in, and it was when he was backing up that the truck would get stuck in some mud. When he got out of the truck and walked behind it to assess the situation, he spotted something unexpected. It was a body. The property owner called 911 freaking out saying that a body had been found on his property and it was a female with blonde hair and he believed it to be the girl with the pictures all over town. The way in which all of this panned out was almost fate. Had this truck not gotten stuck in the mud when it did, Chelsea's body could have been covered with that filter and she could have never been found. The body had been covered with some logs and some branches in a half attempt to conceal her. Not far from where the body was found, a single artificial leaf from her costume had been found as well. Before the media could release this information, the investigators went to visit Chelsea's family to let them know that they had discovered a body. And though they don't have positive confirmation yet, they're quite certain that it is Chelsea that had been discovered on this property. The following day, they were able to positively identify the body as belonging to Chelsea Brooke from dental records. Not long after the discovery of Chelsea's body, the forensics lab called to let investigators know that they were finished with the testing of the costume. They had found inside the costume Chelsea's blood, but they had also found DNA from a male individual. And for those who aren't familiar with CODIS, it stands for Combined DNA Index System. And essentially, it's a database of DNA that law enforcement use to compare samples that they have from crimes to see if they match any other DNA in the system. With this DNA sample from Chelsea's costume, they first tested it against Eric and then Harlan Bird, and they both were cleared. So investigators started working backwards. Anyone that they had spoken to in the beginning of the case, they asked for DNA samples. And they asked Big Mike for his DNA sample as well. And he refused. He talks about it in the Dateline interview. He stated that his attorney told him that he didn't have to give his DNA at this point in time if he didn't want to. He felt almost put off again about the investigators asking him questions again. He stated he wanted to move on with his life and he felt like they were once again blaming him for her disappearance and now death. About a month after the discovery of Chelsea's body, the medical examiner released the cause of death and it was from blunt force trauma to the head. About 10 months after Chelsea was found on the property, the property owner called investigators once more. This time while doing work on his property, he had discovered a red shoe. Investigators came out and began canvassing the area again, moving things around in hopes to find more. It was during this time that they discovered Chelsea's green tights. Finally, the break in the case that they needed would come when the crime lab called investigators and said, we've got something you need to look at. They got a hit on the DNA and it belonged to a man that investigators hadn't even known about. The man's name was Daniel Allen Clay. Daniel apparently also lived in Monroe County. He was unemployed. He didn't have a permanent address and was floating around to various different houses depending on who he was dating. He also had a couple children. Now, the reason why they were finally able to get a match for Daniel's DNA is because Michigan had just came out with a brand new law. And in this new law, they would take DNA samples from anyone who had been arrested for a felony. And Daniel had been arrested in May of 2016 for larceny, so his DNA was taken and put into CODIS. And when it was put into CODIS, it matched with the DNA that had been found on Chelsea Brooke's poison ivy costume. It did take a little bit of time for authorities to figure out where Daniel was. He had no permanent address, so they had to track him down. What they also found out was that he had a couple outstanding warrants already for unpaid child support. When they were finally able to arrest him, they arrested him for those outstanding warrants and didn't tell him that he was a murder suspect at that point. They brought him into the interrogation room and began asking questions. It was a little surprising to him when investigators began asking questions about Big Mike's Halloween party. When they asked him about if he had went, he stated that he did go to the party and he got there around 8 or 9 p.m., but then had left by 10 or 11 p.m. They asked whether he knew Chelsea and he denied even seeing Chelsea at the party. He had said that he never heard of her. He didn't know who she was until the media coverage about her being missing. When asked if he had ever had sex with Chelsea, he said absolutely not. He never did. So, investigators asked him if there would be any reason at all that his DNA would be on Chelsea or any of her belongings. Again, he said no. So, they told him that they had his DNA and that they know he's lying. This is when his story would change. He said he did, in fact, end up hooking up with someone that night at Big Mike's Halloween party, but he couldn't remember who it was. He said it might have been Chelsea, but it might not have been. He just couldn't remember. He said that if it was Chelsea, it was consensual sex and nothing violent happened. Investigators knew they really needed to get Daniel talking, so they told him that Chelsea suffered from a condition called brittle bone disease. He explained that her bones are easily broken, and so if something did happen, that it was likely an accident. Chelsea, however, didn't have brittle bone disease. This was something investigators were just saying to use as a tactic in hopes that it would get him talking. They told him that only her mother and investigators knew about this. And so if this is what had happened, he can tell them. It was when they told him about this disease that they were claiming Chelsea had that you could see the wheels beginning turning in Daniel Clay's mind. He started talking really nonchalant about how he had broken his hand too. And when you look at the interrogation clip, it almost looks as if Daniel gets more relaxed. His story then switched again. This time, he states that he was driving down the road. He saw her walking and decided to offer her a ride. This is when they began having sex. Chelsea told him to choke her, so he did. Then they switched positions and she was under him when all of a sudden she went limp. He started tapping on her face and he tells investigators that he must have been choking her too hard because of her brittle bone disease. He says that he began trying to give her CPR, but ultimately he was so freaked out that he began driving again and then eventually carried her into a wooded area to dump the body. Daniel, however, was adamant that he had no idea why her costume was found in that abandoned building, which that building was five miles away from where her body had been discovered. Despite the multiple stories told by Daniel about what had happened to Chelsea, they never got the full story as to how or why this had happened. It is unknown what exactly set him off. So he was arrested for murder and before they hauled him off to jail, they allowed Daniel to make a phone call and he called one of the mothers of his children. He had told her what was going on and what is crazy about all of this is the mother of his child was actually one of Chelsea's co-workers at the restaurant she had worked at with her friend Becky before her disappearance. So it's crazy to think that though they didn't know each other, they did have a fairly close connection to each other. After he was arrested for her murder, Daniel ended up pleading not guilty to the charges of murder because he said it was a total accident, and the case went to trial. Daniel was still going with the story that he had choked Chelsea for only 20 to 30 seconds before she had died unexpectedly during consensual sex. However, during the trial, the jury got to listen to a medical examiner discuss the fact that you cannot physically choke someone out and kill them in that amount of time. She explained that when someone is choked, they can lose consciousness within 20 to 30 seconds. However, in order to kill them, you have to remain constant pressure on the neck for an additional two to two and a half minutes before they die. So the theory that he was randomly choking Chelsea for 20 to 30 seconds that he claims and she went limp and was dead is physically impossible. The jury was then shown Chelsea's poison ivy costume turned inside out where they could physically see the blood stains on it. That proved that she had lost a significant amount of blood. Not only that, but they had a fabrics expert come in and explain to them that from their analysis, it was very visible to them that the fabric of the costume had been torn at the crotch or cut with a blunt object. Daniel had claimed that Chelsea had removed her costume during their consensual sex, but the evidence provided said otherwise. On May 16, 2017, after only a couple hours of deliberation, the jury reached its verdict. Daniel Clay was found guilty of first-degree murder and illegal disposing of a dead body. In July of 2017, Daniel was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. At the sentencing hearing, Chelsea's mother was there wearing purple, which was Chelsea's favorite color, and a Crime Stoppers pin with her picture on it. She spoke at his sentencing where she, according to Michigan Live, told Daniel that she forgave him, but her forgiveness doesn't mean she will forget. She also gave him a Bible. Daniel was able to thank her for it and told her he would keep it as long as he could and that he was sorry for everything. The judge, however, didn't accept Daniel's apologies to Leandra. And according to the Michigan Live, the judge said, quote, I spent 10 days in trial with Mr. Clay, and I listened to countless hours of him changing his story every time the detectives questioned him or brought up something new. It is very clear to me, Mr. Clay, you are a liar, a rapist and a killer, end quote. In 2019, Daniel Clay tried to appeal his sentence. However, a court of appeals upheld the sentence. And ladies and gentlemen, that is the story of Chelsea Brooke. My heart goes out to her entire family, and I can imagine the hole that her absence has left behind. However, I am so thankful that they were able to get justice, and the man responsible is now going to spend the rest of his life behind bars. Crimeaholics, if you're not already a part of our private Facebook group, make sure that you join by searching "Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. In there, we share all pictures pertaining to the cases that we cover, and we encourage everyone to share all things true crime. Also, make sure that you follow us on TikTok and on Instagram at crimaholics.podcast. Crimeaholics, that is all for now. Until next time, be aware and take care.